Hey everyone, Natalie here from The Pendulum's Path. If you need guidance, direction, spiritual connection, or more, then listen up. I have worked as a psychic and a medium for over three years, connecting people from all over the world with their loved ones in spirit, giving them insight and guidance into their current situations, the past healings that need to be worked on, and what it is they need to know today in order to have a better future. It would be my absolute honor if you would visit my website at www.thependulumspath.com. I also offer emailed readings for those with busy schedules too. Also, for you goblins who subscribe to the Esoteric Book Club, I have a special coupon code just for you. Enter the code STAYWEIRD to get $5 off of any order of $25 or more. Hope to see you there. Hi, I'm Jimmy Coe. And I'm Stephen Hawk. And we're the host of the Cosmic Sponge Podcast, where we explore the unknown from UFOs and cryptids to unexplained disappearances and ancient mysteries. If you're looking for strange stories that will keep you on the edge of your seat, jump on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or search for Cosmic Sponge on your favorite listening platform. Head on over to our website at www.cosmicsponge.com to get access to all of our content, including a full list of platforms where you can enjoy the show. Many of us in Western countries have had the mantra, honor thy father and thy mother, repeated over and over again throughout our youth. In evangelical communities, this was often weaponized, used as justification for any action taken upon a child by a parent or guardian. It was an excuse, a religious exception that condoned their abuse. I want to make it very clear that this never happened to me, although I did see and hear it quite frequently with my classmates growing up in rural West Virginia. Later, when I went to college, I found that this pattern repeated pretty much everywhere in the country. Aphorisms from the Bible being used to justify a parent's shitty behavior. With the rise of opioid dependency and abuse in my home state, I'm seeing the same patterns play out. Only this time, the phrase is used by grandparents who are doing the best that they can while they are forced to raise their displaced grandchildren. I think that's what makes the concept of tonight's book difficult for so many people. Ancestor veneration seems like a daunting, sometimes impossible task for so many people. People who suffered parental abuse, people disowned by their family for any myriad of reasons, whether it be beliefs, sexuality, or gender identity, or even for people who are simply estranged from their relatives. How do you create a practice of ancestral veneration when those are the very people who have hurt you? More importantly, why should this be a part of your spiritual path? Tonight we are going to dive into the book Ancestral Whispers by Ben Stimson and find out the benefits, pitfalls, hazards, and ultimately the rewards of creating your own practice of ancestral veneration. I'm your host Jason and you're listening to the Esoteric Book Club. 
Welcome back, goblins! Man, that was really depressing. Uh, I'm not sure what really compelled me to write an introduction that was that gloomy, but um, yeah, there it is. We have a couple new things going on that I want to cover before we start in the show. The first is that there is a new feature for all Patreon members, and that is a very short audio blog. Now, these are being released periodically. There's no real time frame, no, no format to these. Basically, I just jump on here and I ramble for a few minutes telling you what's going on behind the scenes, what we have coming up, and anything new that's going on in my life. For clarity's sake, I also removed the feature that was a possibility of a Discord server because, frankly, I'm not going to use Discord. And it doesn't seem like anybody else is, so why even have it on there? And finally, I added an entirely new tier to the Patreon list, and that is the Maestro or Maestra, depending on your preferred pronoun. And it is a tier entirely dedicated to someone who wants to single-handedly sponsor each episode. That's right, for $45 a month, you can basically fund the episode. That would include server cost, web hosting, reading material, and it would give me a little bit extra to put me towards my goal of getting a laser strong enough to carve my name in the surface of the moon. But we're not going to talk about that, are we? Of course, I entirely appreciate all of my patrons. Specifically, Soul Rising Studios and Grand Inquisitor Samantha and Grand Inquisitor Annie K. If you too would like to join the archive, go to patreon.com forward slash esoteric book club. Now, let's get weird. Tonight we are covering the book Ancestral Whispers, A Guide to Building Ancestral Veneration Practices by Ben Stimson, released by Llewellyn Publications. Ben Stimson is a therapist, lecturer, student, and spiritual director. He's developed courses on a variety of topics, including ancestor veneration, the power of story, and folklore. He has been involved in neo-paganism, espiritismo, Hinduism, Lakumi, Santeria, and British folk traditions. He is currently a member of the Order of Bards, Ovates, and Druids. It's also mentioned in the book that he used to be part of an experimental spiritual organization called Tribal Hearth. Now, it doesn't go into any detail in the book what this organization actually did, but in the interview that you will hear in two weeks, he actually outlines a lot of the details, and it's rather fascinating. But I'm not going to spoil anything. You'll have to come back later and listen. The one takeaway that I can tell you here, because it's applicable to the book, is that stories have power. Especially stories we tell about ourselves. And that is basically what ancestor veneration is. It's a series of stories. It starts with the story of yourself, and then of your family, and then of your distant ancestors. But it goes beyond that. It also encompasses basically anything in your past that has influenced who you are today. As Ben states in the introduction to this book, he says, quote, This book explores ancestral veneration as a modern spiritual path looking backwards to the ancestors while looking ahead to our own legacies. End quote. 
Think about that. The story that we are telling now will eventually be the story that is told. That seems like a lot to tackle in one book, but I assure you, there is an economy of words that is very important in Ben's writing. To better organize this, the book is divided into two parts. The first part is The Living and the Dead, and the second half is Forming a Living Path. Basically, the first half of the book gets you in the mindset of what ancestor veneration is, was, and yet could still be. Then, the second half of the book is basically, what do you do with this? For the purposes of this show, we are basically only covering the first half of the book. Not because the second half of the book isn't entertaining. I'm doing it this way because I feel like you should have a good understanding of what the basis of, of the practice is before you actually get into the details of how to apply it. So, enough exposition. Let's just jump into the book. Most of the time when you have a book that deals with, say, the dead, or spirits, or in this case, ancestors, it just goes straight into, okay, these things are no longer living. But not ancestral whispers. It starts out with the question, what does it mean to be alive? Or, in a broader mindset, what does it mean to be a person? Most people would answer this by saying, oh, uh, that's a human being, clearly. Okay, what about animals that are now considered sentient? Would you consider a dolphin a person? What about just animals in general? They seem to have personalities and an understanding of how to interact with the world. If you call to your dog, it recognizes its own name, right? That dog understands that that abstract sound that you just made is what you refer to him as. Rover isn't a generic term for all animals of his species. It's him, specifically. So having an understanding of identity and self, well, isn't that personhood? Okay, so maybe we need to expand the definition of a person to include living things, right? Well, plants are also living. Are they people? Recent scientific studies are making us actually start to question that. Trees, specifically, seem to have an understanding of themselves and family groups. And I'm not talking about trees of the same species. I'm talking about trees within the same species, recognizing their own lineage. So the study was conducted with oak trees, right? They drop acorns, and those acorns are the genetic offspring of the parent tree. Well, when those acorns become trees themselves, they can recognize other oak trees that came from the same parent tree. We know that they're doing this because trees that recognize their own siblings will actively grow in ways that do not compete against those siblings, but they will actively compete against other trees, 
even those within their own species. Some people would say that that is not evidence of communication. That is just a genetic quirk that allows trees to not compete against their own DNA sequence, right? Well, it goes a little deeper than that. In fact, it goes deep enough that it's underground. You see, trees actively communicate with each other through their root systems via mycelium, which is the body of mushrooms. What we typically see with mushrooms is basically the dick. You're looking at the reproductive organs of the mushroom popping up through the ground so that it can pollinate and spread. But the body of the mushroom itself is below ground, and it spreads out much like a root system. And trees use their roots to tap into this mycelium and send signals to each other. Well, okay then. Plants are living organisms that have an understanding of family groups and communicate with each other. Okay, they are officially people. So basically the point I'm trying to make is that this book starts with personhood beginning with humans and then extrapolates all the way down to what we consider non-living organisms. It goes from humans to animals to plants to slime molds and rocks and intangible concepts such as love or the sky. All of these things have an influence on us as individuals, both in the past and as we are going forward. This is the basis of animism. All things are people, or if it helps to think of it this way, they have personhood, they have identity, they have self. Or, in the sense of this book and the subject we're talking about, all things have spirit. Every culture has a different term for what they define as spirit. We have words like ashe, mana, orenda, manitou, ka, chi, ba, the list goes on. But for a lot of us in the Western world, it's hard to conceptualize intangible things as having a spirit. There is a fantastic example in this book. Ben cites the book Braiding Sweetgrass. In one of the sections of this book, it talks about how the Potawatomi language is only 30% nouns and 70% verbs. That is virtually opposite of most Romance languages. Now, the reason is very important. The reason is because when a thing is actively existing, doing what it is supposed to do as an organism, as it was created or designed to do, that makes it a living organism. And if it's doing what it's supposed to do, it is described in an active tense, thus a verb. Now, we don't necessarily have cognates for this in English, but the best example that I can come up with is it's not a group of people. They are peopling. They're doing what people do. So if you describe something in an active tense in the Potawatomi language, that means the object is animated. It has spirit. 
In fact, a majority of the inanimate objects in the Potawatomi language are human-created objects. So let's say we're talking about a spear. The flint that the spearhead was made from, when it was in location with the rest of the flint, that would be an animate thing. That is flint being flint. The spear shaft, when it was still part of a tree, was a tree being a tree. But when you separate them from the host object and you work them with human intention and assemble them in a new way, a spear isn't being a spear. It was created to be a spear. It's actually quite foreign to a lot of Western mindsets where it's basically the opposite. A thing isn't a thing until you take raw materials and assemble it. So in a Western mindset, it was simply a rock and wood, but when you put it together, then it becomes a spear and it becomes a thing with a name and a purpose. But not to the Potawatomi. To them, when you take those parts away from the land and assemble it into a tool, it's no longer alive. It no longer has spirit. As if that weren't enough to try to wrap your brain around, we also have to expand on that. Do animate things, things with spirit, have only one type of spirit? If we look at this at the most basic possible mindset, we can say, okay, if it's alive, it has spirit. If it's dead, it doesn't. Now, this is super simplified. This is discounting the possibility that non-living objects can have a spirit. This is simply alive or dead. But what about those weird situations where we seem to be alive but we don't have consciousness. There's no brain activity, no sense of self. There's nothing telling the body to get up and walk around. Although the heart still beats, the lungs are still pumping air. It's like the body is still living, but the person isn't there. So does that body still have spirit? It's alive, it's animated, but it's not interacting with the world around it. If we follow the very basic tenets that we laid out, if it's alive, it has spirit, if it's dead, it's not, then yes, that body still has spirit. But it's not the same thing, is it? And that's the same conclusion that the spiritualist came to in the mid-1800s. They came to the conclusion that there had to be at least two animating forces. One that controls and animates the body, but another that controls and animates the self. So that's how they came up with the idea that there was a soul and a spirit. They worked in conjunction, but they were separate. They called these two parts the spirit essence and the animus, the animating spark of life. Next, we come to Taoism. In Taoism, they have the concept of the Hun and the Po. The way it's described in the book is as a yin-yang. 
It is swirling around each other, interacting with each other. They're separate but unified, if that makes any sense. Now, when a person dies in Taoism, it's believed that their Hun ascends into the heavens, but their Po stays with their remains. Except, depending on the time period and the specific Taoist tradition, you could have many, many Huns and many, many Po. It all really depends on where and when you are. We even see this multiplicity of spirit in New Age traditions, where a lot of times these are described as mind, body, and spirit. Now, because we have that separation, it allows for an individual to both have an afterlife and take part in reincarnation. It's not exactly an either-or proposition. It's a both-and situation. It's basically a way to explain how Grandma can both be in heaven and haunting your antique teapot. But this, this is the Esoteric Book Club, and we like to make things weird. Let's talk about the daemon. Now, officially it's pronounced demon, but it's spelled differently, so just to separate it in an audio format, I'm referring to this as the daemon versus a demon, which has its own connotation. So what is a daemon? The daemon is basically a higher self that is controlling or influencing us from outside of our own bodies. Think of it in terms of a video game. If we are the characters, the daemon is the player. If that sounds a lot like modern simulation theory to you, you're right. But the concept is very, very old. It stems from the ancient Greek idea of a daemon. Now, the daemon were spirits, very, very powerful, very highly ranked spirits. But they weren't gods. Eventually, this concept evolved into the daemon being an outside intelligent force that is controlling our actions, but not us. I'm really getting off track here. Suffice to say that the concept of a spirit and an animating force is way more complicated than you would expect. Let's jump forward a bit so we can talk about another aspect of this book. At the end of each chapter, there are journal prompts. Now, I've covered several books before that had journal prompts, and for a lot of them, it's just like things to reflect on. It's things to think about. They aren't there to inspire deep thought. But that's not true with this book. This book has some very, very pointed journal prompts. In a lot of books, these prompts are oftentimes like end-of-chapter pop quizzes that you used to have in grade school. But here, they are reflections on the material that was just presented. For example, how do you define a person? What is personhood? How might recognizing personhood in non-humans affect your relationship with them? Or, how does your use of language affect your beliefs and worldview? Now, that's a lot of really in-depth material that I've been talking about for, oh, the past 20 minutes or so. 
But you know what? All of that was just the first 25 pages of this book. Now that we've talked about what it means to be alive, we can finally start talking about the dead. But first we have to take a slight detour and talk about pre-life. Yeah, that's a weird concept if you haven't thought about it yet. What about the stage between death and rebirth? Some cultures believe that a soul is created upon a child's birth. But there's also a lot of cultures that believe a soul, once it's created, is never really destroyed. It's recycled, reused, and reincarnated. Hey, that might be a pretty good t-shirt idea. But think about it. If a soul exists, and it always has existed, and always will exist, imagine how much more powerful that would make the practice of ancestor veneration. Think about how much more engaging it would be if you were talking to a spirit that existed between a person's death and their reincarnation into another form. Or, if you include the concepts that we talked about earlier, some part of the spirit will be reincarnated, but the identity of that individual remains with, well, their remains. That's basically the concept behind graveyard dirt. As an individual's remains return to the earth, their spirit becomes incorporated in the soil around it. That soil is infused with ashe, or spirit. Granted, funeral rites around the world vary from culture to culture. For example, sky burials. Now, if you have a weak stomach, I encourage you to jump forward about a minute or so. Sky burials are a Tibetan concept where the spirit physically stays with the human remains. As a result, Tibetans want the remains to be returned to nature as quickly as humanly possible so that that spirit can be reincarnated. To do this, they physically feed human remains to vultures. To many of us in the Western world, that may seem like a gruesome concept, but it's done from a place of compassion. They don't want their family members to linger waiting for the life, death, and rebirth cycle to continue. But, like I said, this is only one version of reincarnation. One where the spirit remains intact and is anchored to the physical remains. As with most spiritual concepts, there's as many versions of reincarnation as there are religions. For example, if you're reincarnated, where do you go? Are you brought back into a family group of spirits? Or is your spirit basically sent completely randomly somewhere around the globe? Do you believe in karma? Are there lessons that your spirit had to learn in a former life? Once you pass on, does your spirit have a job? All of this determines when, where, and if you reincarnate. Here's a concept that most Westerners, even those that believe in reincarnation, don't think about too often. 
if you can reincarnate into any object, how would that change how you interact with the world? Let's take that down to the most basic version. If you reincarnate as another human, how would that change how you interact with random people? But that's enough about reincarnation. Let's talk about the dead. What do the dead actually do? As with most of these discussions, it entirely depends on your belief structure. Do they go to heaven? Do they go to hell? Do they go to Valhalla? It varies from person to person. That will also affect the amount that a spirit is able to interact with us. If you believe that someone's soul is in hell, they're probably not able to interact with us. Conversely, if you think someone's spirit is in Valhalla, they may not want to interact with us. Not with all the drinking, fighting, and feasting that they're doing. What about the comedic belief structure of Egypt? After you die, your soul is weighed. It's either light enough to be unburdened, so that it weighs less than a feather, or it gets fed to the giant crocodile god Amut. If your soul gets devoured, you can't really interact with your family members, can you? Long story short, the question of what do the dead do really depends on where they end up. See? It's not exactly an easy answer, and it requires a lot of self-reflection. As with most parts of this book, we aren't given the answers, but instead we are forced to focus on the questions. At this point, the book goes into a rather interesting tangent. What are some of the hazards of the dead? There's a series of cultural taboos that we see in common around the world. The first is that there seems to be a taboo that prevents the dead from interacting directly with the living world. They can influence things, and they can give things a little bit of a nudge, but they can't physically intercede. They can't do something that would make them seem or feel mortal. When we hear that, we think of spirits trying to intercede on behalf of a family member or a loved one. That does happen, but it's not as common as you would think. At least, not as common as a spirit who can't give up a vice. Someone who can't give up, say, alcohol, or sex, or greed. They just can't let something go, and because of that, they try to remain with the material world. Every culture has a ghost story about a spirit who had, quote, unfinished business. It's a universal concept, but it's never just a single thing. Something is tying that spirit to this world and not allowing them to move on. The next hazard for the dead is being forgotten. This is an interesting one, actually. In some traditions, there is actually a special place for forgotten spirits. In some traditions, a spirit that is forgotten eventually forgets itself and just dissipates. In others, it's required that a person's spirit must be forgotten before it can be reincarnated. 
in really bad situations, the spirit that's forgotten can lose its humanity. That's when they become something monstrous. Something like a ghost. Now, the concept of a ghost is also kind of universal to humanity. When you distill it down, a ghost is basically a spirit that cannot or will not move on to its next incarnation. It's usually tied to something emotional. Something like love, hate, violence, vengeance, whatever. Something is keeping them anchored here. Some ghosts get wrapped up in their own situation. We see them and they're just replaying the same scenario over and over and over again. They're not really interacting with us. But the ones that do tend to become aggressive. Think about the classic ghost haunting a house. It may not like the family that has moved in, so it starts to throw things, break things, make noises, prevent the family from sleeping, anything it can do to drive them away. Now, the concept of a haunting or a ghost is so common around the world that there is a wide array of rituals or practices that drive a ghost away or, conversely, prevents a ghost from forming in the first place. One such practice involves the person's name. In some cultures, once a person passes away, you're not allowed to say their name. In some, you're not even allowed to have photographs of that person. Basically, as long as that person is remembered, their spirit isn't allowed peace. It becomes a painful reminder of life on earth. Think of it in terms of a telephone. We all carry cell phones in our pockets at this point. How annoyed do you get when you get a spam phone call? It's pretty irritating, right? Now imagine you can't mute your phone when that call comes through. You either have to answer it or wait for the other person to get bored. Worse yet, imagine that you have a telephone for every single potential person that knew you, so that when they think of you, that separate phone rings as well. Suddenly, you are surrounded by non-stop ringing. And then, if someone sees a photograph of you, suddenly a new telephone gets installed, and it begins to ring as well. So even though on the surface it may seem casually cruel to eliminate someone's name, or destroy their photographs after their passing, it's actually done again out of a place of compassion. If you've made it this far, your next question is probably, so what? What now? What do we actually do for ancestor veneration? One of the first and most immediate reasons that we even perform ancestor veneration is that it's part of the grieving process. It reminds us that people may be gone, but they're not forgotten. It may seem trite, but it's also fairly universal. The grieving process makes us confront everything that we just discussed. And the mourning process is about the transition of an individual from one stage of life to the next, 
and also our ability to adjust to that person no longer being a part of this world. Ancestor veneration allows you to view those individuals as still being accessible, just remotely so. You can still interact with them. You just have to use a different method. As the author points out, consider mourning to be remembering the dead, while veneration is responding to the dead. A unique separation between veneration and mourning is that mourning is typically for people that you personally knew. Veneration is for everybody who came before. Now there's a lot to be said about the morality of ancestor veneration. Very basically though, you're creating a relationship with an individual. You don't just go up to a random person on the street and ask them for a favor, right? Your ancestors may vaguely know who you are, but if they're someone that you consistently interact with, they are more likely to assist you when you ask for it. It's more about relationship rather than reciprocity. Think about it this way. If you went to your grandmother and asked for advice about a relationship problem, if she's able to, she may just intervene. But if you go to her and say, Hey, Grandma, if you kick this person out of my house, I'll bake you some cookies. Which situation do you think is going to go better? One is assistance from a loved one. The other is basically a contract. Another situation you may run into is simply not knowing anything about a person. You may start out with a name, a birth date, and a death date. You know, things you'll find on a tombstone. But as the saying goes, life is what happens between those two dates. That's what shapes an individual into a person. So yes, ancestor veneration does sometimes require some work. Now, this work could be talking to other family members, finding out more about a person, or it could be going to a local library to look up genealogy. It's hard to relate to an individual based solely on dates on a calendar. But stories, whether true or not, stories are where the magic happen. The problem with that is that we may not like what we find out. Because let's face it, the past was rough. And sometimes the farther back you go, the worse it gets. Throughout history, people have had to do terrible things so that they and their families could survive. Some people did them simply out of convenience. And some people are just deviants. Granted, that's no different than today. People are going to be people. Regardless of who they were and what they did, they are still responsible for who you are today. The best thing that we can do with these individuals is to use them as a mirror. Now before I go any farther, I want to make it very clear that you don't have to do this with immediate family members who have hurt you. You have every right to heal before you do any of this. 
and even then it is your choice to choose whether you do so or not. So what do I mean when I say that we use them as a mirror? What you do is you hold up that individual. You, you conjure an image of them and their actions in your mind. What aspects of them do you see in yourself? Is it a good aspect or is it a bad aspect? If it's a bad one, is it something that you're able to and willing to change? How has this individual's actions in the past affected who you are today? Has it affected you for better? Has it affected you for worse? Are there things you can do to reconcile their actions? To pay recompense? You are not responsible for, quote, the sins of the Father, but their actions do affect you in some way. Now, there is a lot more about this process in the book, but I'm going to leave that for you to discover yourself. If you can't tell, this is easily the best how-to book that I've ever read on a spiritual practice. Ancestral Whispers combines history, experience, and deep thought on a variety of world traditions involving ancestral worship. While it draws on many traditions, it doesn't rely entirely on one single belief system. Instead, it synthesizes common themes and delivers them in a way that allows the reader to construct their own practice in a way that works with their own personal beliefs. So grab yourself a copy of this book, because trust me, you're going to read and reread this several times. The official release date is September 8th, but apparently this book is already in stores, so go get one. As always, I'll post a link in the show notes. The Esoteric Book Club can be found on Facebook, Instagram, Patreon, and now on Threads. If you've ever listened to one of my episodes and thought, I'd buy that guy a cup of coffee, consider joining my Patreon. Frankly, at this point, it's cheaper than coffee. Archive members, stick around. We are going to talk about broadening the idea of what an ancestor really is. For the rest of you, until next time, remember, make it weird. Time once again to open the Esoteric Archive. When we think about our ancestors, typically we think about deceased individuals. Not really intangible things. Nothing like gods or demons or monsters or even forces of nature. But why not? Let's start out simple, though. What about human ancestors? Do they have to have been related to you? 
What if you're adopted? Your ancestors in both of those instances would not be related to you through genetics or by blood. But they are people who have had very big influence on who you are as a person. Hi, Techie Joe here. I work with Ace and Knight and some of the best psychics in West Virginia to create amazing live streams and podcasts for the Psychic Coffee Shop Network. Together, we brew up great content discussing news, events, hot topics, and more, all from a psychic perspective. On the Psychic Coffee Shop, we interview amazing authors in the metaphysical realm. Coffee and Tea combines Asen with Tracy, Dottie, Natalie, or Lady Gwendolyn for the good and the bad of being a psychic. Shameless self-promotion with Dottie the Psychic talks to leading and emerging YouTubers and business owners in our community. Mountain Bears brings you the latest in LGBT news and politics. The Psychic That Plans answers the question of, well, how a psychic plans. Plus, we're live on air. We take your comments and your questions, including psychic advice questions. Check out our amazing programming, book an appointment with top psychics, and find out all the wonderful things we have to offer at pcsbnetwork.com today.